Let's open our Bibles to the letter of Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews. And we're going to come to chapter 13 this morning, uh, the end of our series. Uh, we, began this, um, we began this series the first Sunday of the year, uh, January 7. Uh, I told you back then that this would not be a long, uh, detailed uh, series. I just wanted to, because it's a letter, it's a whole, it's a piece, and I didn't want to get buried in the details. And we started out quite well. We had one sermon per chapter for the first nine chapters. Chapter 10, we slowed down a bit and went to uh, two sermons to get through chapter 10. And then in chapter 11, we really needed four sermons. And then chapter 12, the same. And this is our ninth sermon on chapter 13. <laughs> so if you get the sense that I've, I've, I really wanted to hit the brakes and slow down and not get done, well, that's true. I, um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. This is the third time. Well, actually, I, I preached... It's the second time I preached through the whole book. It's the third time through the last three chapters. And every time I'm um, amazed at the more, I, the more I learn and just how beautiful this, this letter really is. And so this morning, uh, we're going to uh, close out our series by looking at verse 22 specifically. If you have your Bible with you, uh, Hebrews chapter 13. <clears throat> and we're going to read verse 20 through uh, the end of the, of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our God in heaven, we thank you again for this wonderful letter written by a a servant who cares so deeply for the sheep and has such confidence in the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the way that our souls have been fed through these words, and I pray that you would do that again this morning as your spirit makes these words living and active and dynamic so that we hear the voice of our Savior speaking to us this morning. And in hearing him, Lord, um, we are refreshed and strengthened and encouraged as we walk this pilgrim journey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard R.C. Sproul, uh, many of you know, recently passed, but great uh, teacher of the Reformed faith. I once said that if he were stranded uh, for life on an island, and he he could only have one book uh, to read for the rest of his life, of course, the one book would be the Bible. But if if, uh, someone asked, well, what if you only could take one book of the Bible, what book would it be? And R.C. said it would be the book of Hebrews. Uh, because in this one book, he said, I could happily spend the rest of my life reading this one book that, that uh, there's everything that one would need to flourish spiritually uh, in this one letter, this one book. And I, I, I fully agree. Uh, the, our text this morning is, is really the entire book. Uh, what I'm going to do is we're going to 
start with uh, verse 22 and let that sort of uh, mold the sermon, but we're going to be looking at uh, sort of an overview of the book itself, and so I encourage you to keep your Bible open. I just I want us to leave again with an understanding of what this brief letter uh, is about and how, why that matters and, why, and how that should be an encouragement to you so that uh, in the future when you think of the book of Hebrews, um, you can maybe immediately take comfort from it as you think about the, the concern that he has, the, the cure and, and the comfort that, um, that we can have because of the gospel as, as we think about the letter to the Hebrews. Uh, so if uh, you have your Bible with you, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Just very briefly, um, it helps us to understand what the writer here, and again, we don't know who the writer is, I sort of tend towards Bartholomew, others think it's Apollos, uh, others think it's Paul, we don't know. And, um, but, who, but, but whoever it is, is very familiar with the Jewish um, tradition, so most likely Jewish. He's writing to Christians living in Rome uh, who are suffering persecution. They've been expelled from their families and, and from their workplaces. Uh, the government is increasingly becoming hostile to them. And uh, so, so it's, it's hard. And he's writing a letter of exhortation. Uh, I think when we hear exhortation, we think maybe um, something a bit stern, uh, giving instructions or uh, admonition. The, the, the word has much more of an uh, encouraging tone to it. Admonition is included, but it's, it's, it's about encouraging and comforting and consoling. A parakaleo, it's to come alongside of somebody, put your arm around their shoulder, and, and walk with them and encourage them on the way. And that's what we see here. This, this letter is not written primarily to instruct these, uh, these believers of things that they don't know. It's written primarily to remind them of things that they already know so that they might lay hold of those things again and, and, uh, and uh, really have those things mold their life. He knows they're weary. He knows that they become dull of hearing, chapter 5, verse 11. Um, and, and he wants them to just remember what they know. It's, it's maybe helpful to realize that these people already had a magnificent letter sent to them a few years prior called the Book of Romans. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans and, and sent it on uh, to the church there in, in Rome, probably around 58 AD, 28 years after, uh, somewhere 25, 28 years after the death of Christ. And uh, Paul's letter is a systematic theology of the gospel, just this magnificent apologetic defense of gospel truth, carefully reasoned, biblically rooted, a defense, an exposition of what God has done in Jesus Christ for sinners. That's the book of Romans. Well, this letter, the letter to the Hebrews, is written probably somewhere between 60 and 65 AD. And, and the scholars estimate that because there's no mention here of the destruction of the temple, which happened 70 AD. And so it's, it's almost certainly before that. It's, um, so it's sent to the same group of people, not telling them things that they didn't know. They, they have the book of Romans. They know the theology, but they're losing their confidence. They're losing their, their comfort so that they can suffer with joy and perseverance as they once had, you read about in chapter 10. So it's written to strengthen their faith, to shore up their, uh, their, their encouragement, their zeal, their joy in the sufficiency of Christ. He wants them to persevere on the pilgrimage. 
That's the main concern. And so he says, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, book of Romans, lest we drift away from it, the gospel. We have to pay attention. There's a danger being in the church and being in, uh, in the difficulties and trials of life that you sort of just drift away from the gospel. Or you don't really consider what would it mean to pay much closer attention to just sort of assume that your way of doing the Christian life is just the way the Christian life is done. You don't read your Bible much. You don't really um, enjoy worship maybe that much. Uh, God isn't on your mind that much, but that just seems normal to you. And then the trials come and the temptations come. And you you realize how weak uh, you are, how little you actually know. Um, so, So Let's pay much closer attention. That's, that's the core concern because uh, otherwise people can drift away. Very few people bolt away from the gospel. They drift away. Just start showing up less and less and the gospel is less and less relevant to them and, and the word of God less meaningful to them and other things you see are, are, are taking the place. So let's look at the letter together. Overview, have your Bible ready because we'll be spinning around through the book a bit. But I want you to see one of the most beautiful things about this letter is the care, the, the care that he shows for them. That's our first point. The care that he shows for these people. I appeal to you, brothers. It's a deeply pastoral letter. It's written by a shepherd who has an abiding care for this flock. There's a wonderful combination of urgency and tenderness. You see it even here in this first phrase. I appeal to you. It means to urge, to implore. Uh, young people, it's like if you're begging to use the car or you're begging young boys and girls for some, something for Christmas. It's please. It's, there's that urgency to it. I appeal to you, brothers. This stuff matters to the writer. It matters deeply to him. But he writes... Uh, to brothers. You see, there's, there's intimacy and, and solidarity with them. He's, he's, he's walking the same road with them. And, and an evidence um, that you see in the letter of this brotherly companion approach is how often he uses the pronoun we. So if you think about, I just quoted from chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, he could have used the pronoun you, and he would have been completely correct to do so. He could have said, you must pay much closer attention to what you have heard, lest you drift away from it. That would be a perfectly biblical, appropriate sentence, spirit-inspired. But he doesn't say it that way. He says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That, that's a wonderful way of encouraging them. It just helps them to understand that he knows the reality of the struggle because he's in the struggle. His, his, his warnings and admonitions aren't simply addressed to you know, them, you poor benighted uh, people down there. It's, he talks like he's one of them. He's a pilgrim on the same road. Everything he says to them is also applicable to him. And so you'll also find over and over the use of the phrase, let us. Let us, so chapter 4, 1, let us together fear lest any of you should have failed to reach the rest. We corporately need to be concerned about this together. 
4 verse 11, let us strive to enter the rest. 4.14, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, let us hold fast our confession. 6.1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. And you could just go on through the letter over and over and over. Let us. This is a brother speaking to siblings in the faith, a man walking with us. Now, the reason that sort of resonates with me, there's a, there are some in the Reformed world who insist, and I mean they insist, that preachers must speak to the congregation in the second person. So it, it must be you. And the argument goes that the minister doesn't stand in the pulpit as a member of the congregation, but as an ambassador of Christ. And so uh, ministers don't say we. Ministers say you. You must repent. You must believe, you must obey, you must respond, whatever, whatever it might be. Now, undoubtedly, there's, there's a place for that in, in preaching. Peter says, you, right, believe and repent and be baptized, you. So, so, of course, there's room for that. You, you'll find that in the book of Hebrews as well. But the letter, I think, to the Hebrews just destroys the concept that pastors must preach from um, some place outside of, apart from, the congregation. And even when we say you, we better say it with the underlying understanding of we. Shepherds are among the sheep, walking with the sheep. We do not preach for some magical position of spiritual success or separation from the realities that everybody else lives with. You see, we're walking the same road, experience the same weakness, suffer the same fears and flaws. If you're looking to your shepherd as, as some, a success story, I'm sorry. Look to Jesus. He's the success story. So the calling of a pastor, you see, is to hold up the gospel and say, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Look at what we have in Jesus. The call of a pastor is to point out the Christian walk and say, let us then run with perseverance the race marked out for us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We point to Christ and say, let us go to him outside the camp. And that's just as equally true for Pastor Dale or whoever's up here as it is for whoever's sitting in the pew. We point to the heavenly city and we say, let us strive to enter into that rest. Let us. I'm so glad that the writer is not ashamed to let these people know he's walking the same road with them. The same messy, weary, pilgrim road. Because you see, the words in are so encouraging and the care comes shining through and he wants them to hear that because you see, he's, he's there to, to point them to Jesus Christ who is the great sympathizing high priest, the, the high priest who understands because he walked the same road with us. It's wonderful encouragement. And it's a wonderful reminder to pastors and elders, God doesn't give generals to the church to bark out orders and give instructions. He gives shepherds. Men who come alongside and say, let us go, let us go to Jesus. Let's, let's, let's do this together. And friends, that's how we encourage one another. The writers talked about that too, that we have a responsibility to care for each other, and that's how we do it. We, just, we, don't, we don't say, well, if you would just do you know, these three quick and easy steps, you too could be living the, success, the successful Christian life that I am. If any of you say that, um, please someone report it to me. <laughs> um, it doesn't work that way. But we can say, let us. We can't say God is faithful. We can't say the Spirit's powerful. Uh, the gospel's transformative. Let us walk in it. Let us go for it. 
Let's strive together. Let's not settle for apathy. See, this stuff matters. It matters to the writer because it matters to the Holy Spirit. It should matter to us. Well, the core concern, secondly, that I've already mentioned, the core concern is, is he's, not, he's not yelling at them, but he's admonishing them. He senses they're not paying attention like they used to. They're, they're not moving forward, chapter 5, the way they ought to be. They should be teachers at this time, and yet he still has to give them basic milk, the ABCs of the Christian faith. Uh, chapter 5, verse 11, they've gotten dull of hearing. See, and that, and that matters to him because he's a, he's a man who knows his Bible. He knows his Old Testament. He remembers the stories of Israel coming up out of Egypt, all the, um, all the excitement, all the enthusiasm. And all the weakness. And he's, he's mentioned, he's reminded them in chapter 3 and 4 about uh, what happened to them in the wilderness. How they fell into unbelief. They didn't believe that God was able to lead them through. They didn't believe that God was able to provide for them in the wilderness. And they grumbled and complained. They wanted to go back. And uh, because of their unbelief, they fell in the desert. If you have your Bible, just go to chapter 3. <clears throat> chapter 3, verse 12. Let's just start at verse 7. Chapter 3. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Here Again, you see, this writer knows that temptation is real. In this pilgrim journey, sin is deadly. Unbelief is devastating. Perseverance is essential. We, we, um, we share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. That's the road, friends, we're walking on. Sin is deceitful and it hardens hearts so that people aren't able to see what they're doing. In eternal realities. They're not, they're not able to perceive the danger that they're in. They're, they've, they've no sense of the danger of neglecting the salvation of God. Or ignoring the oversight of elders. Or um, removing themselves from the assembly of the saints. Hebrews chapter 10, 25. And so, and so people get hardened hearts. And, and, and they don't realize that what it means to profess, you see, a faith and yet live a life that, that is not in keeping with that faith. The writer has talked about that. Chapter 6, it's crucifying once again the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. To live in unrepentant sin as a professing Christian holds Jesus up to contempt. It, it's a trampling of the blood of Christ underfoot, chapter 10. It means that there's no sacrifice for sins left, chapter 10, 26. How shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Chapter 2, verse 3. 
Because you, the writer understands God hasn't changed. And the pilgrim journey really is no different than it was for Israel in the wilderness. And God has invited and opened the door and called us. And, and, and God promises to lead us. But we have a calling to respond in faith. God is still a consuming fire, 1229. And, and the writer's not afraid to point it out. Chapter 10, verse 30. We know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. He doesn't back away from the reality of a thrice holy God in heaven. And the reality of judgment for those who do not uh, come into his presence ready, equipped, he understands, you see, the, the dangers on this pilgrim journey. He knows the subtle, deceitful, heart-hardening reality of sin. He's concerned in light of the, the evil against sinning against the blood of Jesus. He's, he's concerned in light of the reality of the day of jud the, the judgment of God. He's concerned in light of the glory that lies ahead and the devastating um, tragedy of missing it. Therefore, let us strive to enter into that rest. I just want you to sense the, what's on his heart. He cares for their soul, their eternal soul. He's desperate for their eternal well-being. As every shepherd, elder and pastor ought to be, as every parent ought to be, as every good Christian friend ought to be, that we care about each other's soul. Well, what's the cure for lethargic, weary pilgrims? And that's the beauty of this letter again. He doesn't spend the majority of the letter talking about the problem. He points out the problem and then gets on to the cure. The cure, of course, is Jesus. It's to see Jesus. It's to set our hearts and our eyes on Jesus. And he's, he jumps into that immediately in chapter 1, if you, if you have your Bible. Look at just chapter 1. The supremacy of God's Son is the, the little heading over... Um, Chapter 1, verse 1. And he, he begins by just reminding us that Jesus is God's final word to this world. And so we should listen to him. Uh, he reminds us that Jesus is superior to the angels, chapter, uh, verse 4. Uh, and and uh, all the way through chapter 1, really, he's, he's showing the, the supremacy of Christ over angels. He's, he's showing, if you look at um, chapter 3. Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, 3 verse 2, Moses uh, was faithful in all God's house, but, but Jesus is counted worthy of, of more glory than Moses uh, because he owns the house. He's the builder of the house. In chapters 5 and 7, he talks about Jesus as the greater, he's greater than Aaron. He doesn't follow Aaron's priesthood, but the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's chapter 5 and 7. Um, he is the guarantor of a better covenant than Moses and Aaron. That's chapter 7 and 8. He serves in a better temple. That's chapter 8 too. Offers a better sacrifice. That's chapters 9 and 10. And I'd like you to go to 9 and 10 because there's a, a, just a few texts to read. This really gets us to the heart of the letter. He just, he's, he's, just, he's just reminding them throughout the letter the supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. That something actually happened. 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's something, you see, makes all the difference in the world for them. So if you look at verse 11 of chapter 9, and we're just going to have to hit some highlights here. But he's talking about the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, not the past, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. In other words, he went into the temple in heaven. He entered once for all into the holy places, the very presence of God, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. It accomplished something. Something the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't touch. It actually redeems, saves, secures an eternal redemption. Verse 15. Therefore he's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The inheritance was always there, right? Even in the covenant of works. If you obey, you live. If you obey, you live. It's right there. Just obey. And you'll live. And nobody can keep the covenant of works. In Adam's fall, we sinned all, and then we add our own to that. So that's, it's a closed door to us. So how are we going to receive the promised inheritance? Well, through the blood of Jesus Christ. He secured that eternal inheritance. That, that's incredible. That means your soul doesn't have to endure the hell that you deserve, and, doesn't, and I don't have to endure the hell that I deserve. That there's a completely different destiny written for you and for me, sinners all, because of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 12, go to 10, 12 through 14. He's just pounding home the sufficiency of what Christ has done. Verse 12. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, this is such a great verse, by a single offering, his, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So if you come to Jesus Christ in faith, Trusting his single offering, which has perfected, past tense, for all time, you who are being sanctified, present tense, being sanctified, passive tense, God doing the sanctifying. I mean, it is a complete gospel. It is a sufficient Salvation, that's what he wants us to see. You see, that will wake you up. That'll wake me up from our spiritual lethargy. From just doing the best we can. It's not about doing the best we can. It's about holding on to Christ. Trusting that his power is at work. That he's actually accomplished something. So he just preaches Christ, Christ crucified, Christ as a sufficient Savior. Because you see, he wants them to take Jesus for themselves. It's... the glories of Christ that, that he's so desperately trying to, to expose and, and to magnify and manifest in front of them. He, he's doing that, you see, because they've gotten dull to it. Jesus just sounds like another religious word. And sanctification and covenant and redemption, it's just, it's just liturgical language and it's, and it's dull. 
And, they, and they've, they've lost the taste for it. They don't have the sense that this is life. That, that, that these are eternal things that angels are, stand in awe of. And it's for us. And so he's, he's, he's driving home. Do you understand the blood of Jesus was real blood and the sacrifice he made was a real sacrifice made in the very presence of God? That these are objective realities. They happen as objective, irrefutable events. And, and now what is, what's, what is left for us is to go to it, you see, to appropriate these truths. They're of no use if you just nod to them. If you just say, yes, I believe that. You see, the question is, what do you mean by I believe that? Do you, tr- do you love that truth? Do you trust that truth? Is, have you cast yourself on that truth? Is that where you go day after day? Have you taken these glorious realities for yourself? Do you speak them to yourself? Have, have they had the, the ability to humble your pride? Have they had the power to cast out your anxiety? Are they moving you past your addiction to self and your addiction to comfort? So that we are more and more seeing Jesus and eager to follow after him? That's the question. We won't be saved by familiarity with Jesus. We'll be saved if we have Jesus. If we've owned him as our Savior. We've owned his righteousness as mine. I don't have any other righteousness than his righteousness. None. He's my redemption. He's my peace. He's my strength. He's my wisdom. He's all I have. And so you see, that's the writer just wants him to act on what you know. Act on what you know. Take, a, take hold. Lay hold. Lay hold. And then one final verse here. 10 verse 19 through 23. Many think this is the central verse of the whole letter. 10, 19, 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Let us draw near. With a true heart in full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, our bodies washed with pure water, sanctified, belonging to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. How do you you close with Christ? How does the reality of all that he accomplished on that cross, how does that become your, your reality? And the answer is faith. That's it, faith. Believe it, you know, but believe it in the sense that we lay hold of it. One of our confessions, the Helvetic Confession, says faith is a grasping of all things that one hopes from God. It is a grasping of all things that one hopes from God. It's taking it to yourself. Do you remember Jesus in this conversation with the, the, the Jewish synagogue ruler? His daughter was dying, and he comes to Jesus, and he, and he asks for help. Because his daughter is, is dying, and, um, and he loves his daughter. And Jesus says, well, let's, let's make our way. And so they're making the way, and then this woman shows up who's got a, a, a bleeding issue, and there's a, uh, there's a whole thing that goes on, and who touched me, and Peter's rebuking the Lord. And, and, and here's the, 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 the synagogue leader, my, my daughter's dying. 
And then the servants come and say, don't bother the master. She's, she's gone. And you're a father. And you were so close. You were so close. He was on his way. And now she's gone. And you remember what Jesus says? He says, do not fear, only believe. Only believe. And in saying it, he gave the gift of faith. And the man believes. And later finds out that at that very hour, life entered in again to his daughter's body. See, could it be that simple, friend? Could it, could it, could it be that, that is, that's the only thing required to, to rescue you from the, the, the condemnation you deserve and to bring you into glory you can never imagine? Is it, is it possible that that's it? And the Bible says, yeah, that's it. Only belief, but, yet, but it's belief that the faith that, with the faith that God gives. It's a faith that lays hold of. It, it's the faith of that, that synagogue ruler to, to look at Jesus and to say, okay, I'm going to hang on to his word. He said only believe, I'm going to believe. And then the power of God makes miracles happen. That's what Jesus calls us to. There's a wonderful little poem by John Newton. I've, I've used it before. But he says, <laughs> by various maxims, forms, and rules that pass for wisdom in the schools, I strove my passions to restrain, but found all my efforts proved in vain. But since the Savior I have known, my rules are all reduced to one. To keep my Lord by faith in view, this gives me strength and motives too. Exalted on his glorious throne, I see him make my cause his own. Then all my anxious cares subsides, for Jesus lives and will provide. Is that your relationship with Jesus? That you look to him and you rest in him? as you fight against temptation, as you, as you wrestle with grief, as you, as you struggle with confusion and not knowing what to do, are you, are, you, are you looking, are we looking to him, leaning on him? Because, friends, he is the anchor that, that holds us fast, and that's the, that's the comfort. The reality of what Christ has accomplished in the gospel is that there's, a, there's an anchor now for our soul, chapter 6, verse 19. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Maybe you, you remember that message where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Remember forerunner, that's the name for the little boat that would take the anchor. A ship would come to the harbor, but there's a sandbar in front of the harbors. And so the ship can't go in yet. It's got to wait for the tide to rise. But they would take the anchor in the little prod, uh, it's prodmo, prodomos, that's what it is. Not that it matters. It's a forerunner. And they go into the, they, they, they can make it into the harbor and they drop the anchor in the harbor and it disappears out of sight. And yet because the anchor is there, the ship is safe, and, and, and the anchor assures the ship will one day go in. And that's exactly what the writer says Jesus has done. He's gone into the harbor, into the most holy place, entered behind the curtain. And he's disappeared. He's out of sight. We don't see him now. But his departure, friends, was not abandonment. It was preparation. He went as the forerunner. The absolute guarantee that one day we will be there too. And so John 14, when he's talking to his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, right, I'm going to prepare a place that where I am you may be also. 
Where I am, you may be also. That's the reality the writer wants to pound home. There's a better country. There's a heavenly city. And God is not ashamed to be called our God, but he wants us to hunger for it. He's prepared it for us. He wants us to hunger for it. It'll take coveting things of this world out of your mouth. It'll take, it'll take anxiety of losing things in this world away from you. You have a lasting city. Here we have no lasting city. Your health, your properties, your pension, your whatever it might be, family, anything that you might consider as a rock in this life, it's a, it does not last. But you have a lasting city. You have a city whose foundation and builder is God. And when everything is shaking and falling apart in your life, that city stands and the promise stands, you see. And because Jesus has gone ahead of us, and, and if you think about those sailors of old, they wouldn't see the anchor, but they could see the lines coming from the anchor to the boat. And friends, we see the exact same thing. Every promise of God in, in Jesus Christ is, an, is a line that we can see that runs directly to the anchor and holds us there. And so we know that one day we will also join him in the very presence of God on that heavenly shore. And so it's okay. And we can walk this pilgrim road with our eyes set on what is yet to come. He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. Friends, I, I just implore you, appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to press these truths into the reality of your life. Do it with your Bible open. Do it in prayer before the Lord, that this Jesus who's accomplished this salvation is becoming more and more real, that, that what is yet to come becomes more and more precious, more and more concrete in your mind and in your heart, so you can say no to the advertisements, you can say no to passing pleasures, because you're hungry for such greater things. There's, there's, there's peace in trial because one day the trials are going to be done. There's, there's patience in affliction. There's even joy because you know that you're walking this pilgrim road trusting in the Lord, living a life that's pleasing to him. You've joined him outside the camp. You're engaged in the mission and one day you will be where he is. That's our hope. That's what we, that's what we hold fast to. That's our confession. Let's do it for real. Amen. Oh, God in heaven, we are, we so deeply need to be reminded of what we know and to lay hold of these things so that we do not drift from them and to move forward in these things so that we, we're not, we don't become dull to the glory of the gospel. A gospel that has not just saved us in the past, but is saving us for an incredible future. Oh, God, I, I pray that that city that is to come would begin to take form and shape in our mind and heart. We would begin to, to be able to see the towers uh, in the distance, the banners of the gospel over uh, floating above. We, Lord, we would have a sense of its beauty, the purity and the peace that is there. We would rejoice because of loved ones who are already there in the presence of Jesus Christ and and we would walk this pilgrim road, Lord, then with endurance and perseverance and faith and even joy. Because we don't walk it alone. We have a Savior who's given us a spirit. We have promises that, that cannot be shaken. We have a sacrifice that stands for all time. 
We have a redemption that is eternal and secure. And so, oh God, I pray that we let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, uh, because, Lord, we are pilgrims on our way to the city of our Savior. Father, I, you alone know how these truths would change our life, change the way we think about our marriage and our homes and our work and what we do with our time and our mind. But, oh God, please make those changes real. That Jesus Christ and what is ours in him become the formative realities of our life. And we'll give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.